bell to the center. And this is Joseph Goldstein, Sylvia Borstein, Miosh and Kelly. Um, we'll all be uh, leading this retreat together. It's a, a great joy to see you all and to know that we're <coughs> about to begin. I always think of this as our anniversary season because in 1976, on Valentine's Day, we moved into this place. We moved into the center. Many of you have heard uh, me or one of us tell the story about our first discovery of this center. Joseph and I and Jack Cornfield had been back from Asia for just a couple of years where we had all gone to practice and study the Buddhist teaching. And we spent the two years that we were back in this country leading retreats, but in a very, you might say, kind of grassroots sort of manner. Somebody would write us a letter and say, well, I can get together a cook and 12 friends. Will you come lead a retreat? And we'd say, sure. We would do that, and then the retreat would end, and we would never know if there would be another retreat until we got the next letter. So we just went around doing that for a couple of years when a friend of ours said, well, why don't you start a center? It would be a kind of sacred site in this country. It would be a repository, a collection of all of the energy and sincerity of people's practice. Sounded like a a wonderful idea, and so we looked around at various places, and finally in... uh, December of 1975, somebody brought us here. We looked at this place, and we were quite torn about what to do. On the one hand, it seemed absolutely perfect. And here it is in the middle of nowhere, and it's very pretty, and it's very quiet. And On the other hand, it seemed just huge. And we thought, well, here we are. We've just gotten back, really, from Asia, and we're teaching in this very uh, haphazard sort of way. And, you know, what if... Nobody ever wants to come. (laughs) And we have this really big place. And we couldn't decide what to do, so we ended up going to lunch in downtown Barrie, which some of you probably saw today, um, which is not very big. And uh, in the center of the town is the classical New England town green. And in those days, there was a monument in the town green which had inscribed upon it the Barrie town motto. turns out that the Barrie town motto is tranquil and alert. So we looked at that and we said, okay, that's an omen. (laughs) Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. And so we said, let's do it. And I still actually uh, quite enjoy seeing the police car, the Barry police car go by sometimes and it has tranquil and alert on the door and um, some friends of mine got married uh, in my living room, and Tranquil and Alert is stamped on their wedding certificate, which I thought was a pretty good blessing for a wedding. Um, now, Miyoshin was uh, telling this story one day about looking through the rather slim volume, which is the history of the town of Barry, and this uh, building, the main part of the building, was once a mansion. It was a private home owned by a Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And it turned out that Colonel Gaston had his own, you might say, sort of personal motto, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. (laughs) Which kind of made you wonder how he got along with his neighbors, you know, who were maybe going around trying to be tranquil and alert. 
But I say all that because I believe that in many ways we do have our personal mottos. We have our dedications. We have our habits of mind. We have the particular lenses through which we view ourselves and we view the nature of life. And we come to an experience like this to uncover those determinations, those dedications, those things we define our lives by and ourselves by and our capacities, our potential by, and then to loosen the grip of some of those tight holdings to see what we might discover in terms of how we might rededicate our lives or how they might change or different potentials that we might have that are not so limited or limiting. So we come to an experience like this to really uncover many layers of our own experience. It's not really coming together um, to adopt a dogma or a set of beliefs to decide that one is a Buddhist or not a Buddhist, but really to use the structure and the support and the nature of the experience to go as completely and deeply as one can into one's own experience and to see, and particularly in the light of metta meditation, of loving-kindness meditation, it is about intention. It's about how we have defined ourselves and the capacity of our hearts and how we might expand and expand and expand through the power of inclusion so that we do not have a, a limited and narrow sense of either what love or compassion, loving-kindness is, or who we are in that regard. The practice of loving-kindness is what is known in the Buddhist tradition as a concentration practice, which means that, well, those of you who are experienced in meditation, if you think back to, maybe it was just tonight, the last time you sat down to meditate, and those of you who are not experienced in meditation, think about the last time you sat down with the idea of thinking about something or reflecting on something. And it's clear that, for the most part, the conditioning that we have is not for the mind to be directed to an object and to stay there for very long. Really, we tend to be trained to be scattered, to be dispersed, to be distracted, so that we give our minds a very simple task, like feel the breath, or repeat this phrase of loving-kindness. And you would think, somehow, we could do it. But really, it's not that easy. One breath, maybe two breaths, (laughs) maybe three breaths, or three phrases, and we're gone. So if you feel your way back into that experience of having the mind leap back into the past or forward into the future, into judgment, into evaluation, into supposition, into conclusion, and feel how much energy that actually is that is wasted in all of of that restlessness or that agitation. And now imagine gathering all that energy back in, just gathering it, shepherding it back in, so that it is returned to you, so that it's available to you again. That's the power of concentration. 
That's why concentration, even like the, the movement of my hands in that gathering, it's one of wholeness, it's unification, it's integration, bringing one's being back together, returning. Concentration is considered a, a path of wholeness and healing and empowerment because that's a lot of energy. That's a huge amount of energy that could be available to us. But we have the habit of scattering, of wasting. And what often strikes me as quite ironic in that example is that it is our own energy. It could be here. But we have to learn how to to gather it, to steady it, to have it return to us. Loving kindness is a practice of concentration. It's a practice of intention. It means touching a very deep intention within us to connect, to open, to include, to recognize, to pay attention rather than overlook. And it's a very subtle practice. It's a very delicate practice. It's very easy to do a practice of loving kindness and berate oneself continuously. You know, I'm not loving enough. Or surely yesterday that was a moment of pure, unconditional love, but it's gone. Or everyone else in the room must be sitting, floating in bliss, whereas I feel wretched, you know. There's no particular feeling, emotion, sentiment, experience that's supposed to happen. And so the really great news is you don't have to judge yourself and you don't have to judge what your experience is. It's a process that's very subtle. It's about that intention of the heart, learning how to touch it, how to expand it, how to connect to it. When we first moved in here in 1976, those of us who were here in the beginning thought, well, we'll spend the first month of our um, having moved in, doing a retreat. So I thought, well, I had never done loving-kindness practice in an intensive, structured way. I'd always done it a little bit. Um, But I knew how it was done when it was done intensively, which is the way we'll do it throughout this retreat. And that is, we begin with offering these phrases, the intention of the heart, the power of inclusion and connection to ourselves. And we move from there to someone who's known as a benefactor, somebody who has inspired us, who's been good to us, something like that. We move from there to a friend, then a neutral person, someone we don't have strong feelings for one way or another, then a difficult person. And then from there we move to a, a sense of opening to the boundlessness of life and all the various life forms. So I thought, okay, I know how it's done, and... I'll just do it, even though I don't have a teacher. So I spent a week, I was living in room M108, actually. And uh, I thought, I'll spend the first week just doing the phrases of loving kindness for myself. So all day long, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, I would be repeating these phrases like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And I felt absolutely nothing. It was like an incredibly dreary week. 
And then something happened to someone sort of in the larger community of our friends in Boston so that several of us had to quite unexpectedly leave the retreat. And I had to leave the retreat. So I was upstairs there in the bathroom and, um, you know, very surprised at having to leave so suddenly. And I dropped a jar of something on the floor, on the tile floor. I don't remember what it was, but it broke. It shattered. And whatever it was went everywhere. And I can remember the first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. And I thought, look at that. (laughs) You could have given me anything in the course of that week, and I could not have honestly said something was happening, but something was happening. Something is happening through the sincerity of our effort, through our willingness to participate, not to hold back, and very much through our willingness to begin again. That is actually the essential secret of meditation practice. That when you sit down and you have this object, whatever it is, whether it's the breath or something else, or in this case the phrases of loving kindness, and you find that for the last 10 minutes you have been taking a vacation in France, you realize that and you just begin again. That, in a way, is like the miracle of practice. That you don't have to do remedial work, you don't have to punish yourself, you don't have to judge yourself, you don't have to figure anything out. You can actually completely and wholeheartedly start again. You will all undoubtedly have many different kinds of experiences in the course of this week, and they're all a part of it. There's nothing really that's wrong. And at the same time, it's good to remember that sense of purpose, of dedication to come back to the the simplicity and the directness of the practice and to see what you might discover about yourself and about the nature of kindness and the nature of connection. We traditionally begin retreats with taking what are known as the three refuges. That is refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then undertaking five precepts, which are the Uh, you might say, the kind of community guidelines that hold this sphere of care and kindness toward one another. Another memory I have of uh, one of the years um, here, very early on, somebody approached us and said, well, you know, my parents think it's really bizarre that I've undertaken this strange new hobby of Buddhist meditation, and I think it would be a great idea if you had a retreat for everyone's parents who are so hostile and confused about what we're doing. And we said, oh, sure, that's a great idea. And so we did it. And I can remember the first morning in that retreat, because we wanted everyone particularly to feel very comfortable here, uh, we would eat meals with everybody and talk rather than have them be in silence. And I can remember the very first breakfast, somebody sat down opposite Joseph and said, you've kidnapped my daughter and brainwashed her, and it's not going to happen to me. (laughs) So that was the general atmosphere of the retreat. But it came to my mind right now because um, it was also the case that people used to come into this hall, the parents used to come to this hall, carrying like half their belongings because they were afraid to leave them in their rooms. You know, somebody might steal them. And somebody was always locking 
the door to their room as they'd leave. And of course, we didn't have any keys. You know, so then somebody would have to run around looking for a master key and somehow try to unlock the door. And it was so sad, really, that people so often come from a place where they have to, they are so threatened or they feel so threatened. And they have to try to close down in order to seemingly protect themselves. And we have this unbelievable blessing in being here in that we can create, we do create a community together where it doesn't have to be like that, where we can respect one another and ourselves and take care of one another and ourselves and we don't have to lock the door and do all of that. So that's the nature of the five precepts. The three refuges in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are, in a way, affirmations of our own potential and our own capacity. When we look at the Buddha, it's not just looking at a historical figure, somebody who got enlightened under a tree 2,500 years ago in India. But we're looking at what it means to be a human being and what it means to have realized that potential of a human being to be awake and to be free, to have boundless compassion. When I think of the Buddha, I often think of him as an integrated being. You know how most of us experience ourselves so that we're one way when we're alone. Like maybe we're full of loving kindness when we're alone, but we're terrified of being with people. Or we're incredibly in harmony when we're with people, but we can't bear to be alone. Or one way at work, and another way with our families. And Here I see the Buddha as somebody whose life was seamless, so that the threads of loving kindness and compassion and wisdom were the threads of his life, whether alone or teaching, whether in solitude or wandering through India. His life, his being was of one piece. And so we take refuge in the Buddha as a recognition of that potential within ourselves. We take refuge in the Dharma, which is sometimes translated as the teachings or the law, the laws of nature, um, as a recognition of honoring the truth of the present moment, that the truth of this moment's experience is the path to a greater and more absolute truth. And as a recognition that it's, it's the path, it's the walking of the path, which is what brings forth these qualities. And that we too can walk a path or walk this path and experience the fruits of that that it's real, it's practical, it's for us. It's something that we bring to life through our own efforts, through our own actions. We take refuge in the Sangha, which has several different meanings. Traditionally, it means the community of monks and nuns who have preserved the teachings throughout all of these 2,500 years. It means a community of beings who have been willing throughout history to take a risk, to see the truth, to be a little different, to seek deeper answers, to persevere through difficulty, to really honor wisdom, to honor fearlessness, to honor loving kindness. Those beings who have realized to some extent the truth of who they are. And 
it also has a meaning, the word sangha, in the sense of this community gathered here, that just as in so many endeavors we can draw strength from other people doing the same thing, so too it is often the case here, that we are in many ways doing this together. So that's the three refuges. And then the five precepts, which are the the ethical guidelines, uh, which we undertake for the time that we are here, are first a precept not to kill any living being, which in another way means to use this time to develop and deepen a sense of reverence for all of life and honoring our connection with all of life. We undertake a precept to refrain from stealing so you don't have to lock your doors, <laughs> which also in a deeper sense means to have a sense of contentment. It's really okay. Not to take that which has not been offered brings us back to some faith that what we've been offered is going to be okay. It's enough. We don't have to be restless, you know, and seeking and wanting. We can return to that place of rest, of just being with what is. We undertake a precept to refrain from sexual activity, which in the world, or in the worldly sense, outside of retreat, is a precept to refrain from sexual misconduct, which is a a recognition of the power of that kind of energy and a determination not to use that energy, sexual energy, in a way that hurts ourselves or harms ourselves or hurts someone else. In the context of the retreat, we ask you to refrain from sexual activity altogether and to use um, all of one's energy in the pursuit of the meditation. We undertake a precept to refrain from lying, which we also enhance in the context of retreat to a precept of undertaking silence. Except for the times when you're speaking to one of us, then it's an extraordinary opportunity to just for once, be quiet. Many times when people have not done a retreat before, the idea of silence is very unnerving. And people say either, I don't know how I'm going to be silent for a week, or my friends took a bet that I could never be silent for a week, something like that. But almost always, at the end of the experience, the silence is one part of what happened that people point to as having been the most beautiful. Because there's so much peace in that. Not that the mind is silent, but the habit we have of continually having to present ourselves in the world as being somebody or something, good or bad or right or wrong, whatever it is, it's like we just don't have to do it. We're not here for anybody else in that sense we can return to our own experience and learn to trust our own experience and go deeper into our own experience. And we undertake a precept to refrain from taking intoxicants, alcohol or drugs, and rather using the time, again, to uncover the mind's natural potential, which is extraordinary. What I'd like to do now is, is just have you sit, and I'll repeat the refuges three times, as is traditional, and you can repeat them silently to yourself. And I'll do the precepts one time, and again, you can repeat them silently to yourselves. 
and then we'll begin. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to refrain from killing any living being. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which has not been given. I undertake the precept to refrain from sexual activity. I undertake the precept to refrain from lying. I undertake the precept to refrain from taking intoxicants. Let's sit together for a little while as the beginning. For tonight, we won't go into the loving-kindness instructions specifically. Rather, just use the breath as an anchor for the attention, coming into the moment, gathering our energy back, collecting, being more at one with ourselves, and as a springboard for that very important lesson of being able to begin again. Take a few deep breaths. Feel the breath. Feel the nostrils, the chest, the abdomen, and then release. You can allow the breath after that to become natural so you're not forcing it or trying to control it in any way.
wherever you feel the, me- the breath most distinctly, whether it's the in and out movement of the air at the nostrils, or the rising falling movement of the chest or the abdomen, you can let the mind rest there. The breath is happening anyway. It's not something you have to make happen. So see if you can simply connect to it, one breath at a time. Whenever you find your attention has wandered, don't worry about it. See if right then, without elaboration and judgment, you can just let go and start. Start again. Coming back to the moment, coming back to the breath. You have to start again a million times. It doesn't matter.
you feel ready, you can open your eyes. That was the real welcome. So I know you're, uh, many of you are probably quite tired and you can just take some rest now. We'll begin again tomorrow morning. So thank you.